Hey everyone, welcome to Women's Work, Rising, Leading, and Thriving, produced by the Institute for Women, Wellness, and Work at Ursuline College. I'm Gina Messina, and this is a podcast that empowers women to recognize ourselves as the leaders we've been waiting for. If you're from the Cleveland area, you will likely recognize the name of our next guest, Erica Merritt. She's well known for her leadership abilities and for her commitment to inclusion and equity. She's a Gestalt-trained coach and also, if I may add, an Ursuline alum doing the College Proud. Erica, I am so excited to talk with you. I have been a long fan of your work, and I know that you're doing such incredible, incredible things in the world, truly a leader of positive change. So I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. I find your journey so amazing. You started in nonprofit, which is such important work. And you made the switch a few years ago and decided to go into consulting. And I wonder what led you to make that change. Yeah. So I always had a dream of having my own business. I laugh at myself now a little bit because I imagined that it would be what I would do when I retired. I have no idea why exactly that was the way I thought about it. But essentially what started to happen for me, many of my jobs, when I would leave, they would say, we know you're leaving, but would you still be willing to do this one thing or could you come back and do that for us? And so there was this way that the roles that I was leaving were providing these consulting opportunities. And then I started getting other projects. And it honestly, it went from a side hustle to looking up about four years ago and realizing that it was like I had two full time jobs. I was going to my day job all day and then I was spending all of this time on the evening, in my evenings and my weekends, and sometimes even taking vacation days to do these other uh, sort of passion projects that were near and dear to my heart and also taking up a significant amount of time. And so at some point it felt like, oh, you need to make a decision, right? You need to either step away and focus on these this consulting work full time, or you need to cut back on the consulting work and focus on your full-time job. And when I really did some digging uh, in terms of what I actually wanted, what I realized was that I wanted to step out on my own and see whether or not I could make it. And it's, at first it seemed really far-fetched. And then the more I thought about it, the more I socialized it with friends. I have the good fortune of being friends with quite a few business owners. And uh, it was a decision that my husband and I made together. And yeah, so I took that leap three years ago and I am happy to report <laughs> so far so good. That's that is outstanding. I think so many of us almost like fantasize about this. Like one day I'm going to be in business for myself. Like I'm only going to answer to me or even doing the side hustle. Right. I mean, we're reading about that everywhere, especially in this last year. And so what kind of risks were engaged there for you? What did you really have to think about? What would you encourage people to think about if they were really considering going into business for themselves? 
Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of sort of follow your dreams stuff out there. And I am a believer in following your dreams, but I think that you also need to have a plan for if your dream does not turn out the way that you're hoping. And I still remember reading this blog post from this guy who was like, I followed my dreams and now I'm broke <laughs> because he, you know, he had this vision of what he was going to be doing. And he like, you know, you listen to sort of the self-help kind of stuff and not that some of that isn't great, but again, what is like a dream without a plan? It can turn into a nightmare kind of thing. And so I think that for me, it was a calculated risk because I'll tell you a couple of things. So one thing that really helped me is that, and this seems odd maybe, but in 2014, I experienced a layoff and it was the first time that I had ever been laid off from a job. And I was laid off for nine months, Wow! which was a lot of things, including very humbling <laughs> uh, because I had a, I have a pretty good resume and I have an amazing network. And I can say that I spent a lot of that time interviewing. I had quite a few experiences where I got down to, you know, me and one other person and they went with the other person or I got a job offer that I couldn't afford to take. There were a few different times where I had to make the tough decision of having a job right in front of me and having to think about what happens if you take a significant pay cut. We know that particularly for women, the ability to make that up is really challenging, right? So once, it, because employers look at what your current, many of them, this is shifting, right? From an equity practices perspective, mm -hmm. this is starting to shift, but historically have looked at what you were paid and then based your salary on that instead of really thinking, what does this job pay? And what is this person worth in terms of what they're bringing to the table? So that experience of being laid off actually helped me make this decision to step out on my own because we strung it together. I had some consulting projects. I was teaching at the time. I picked up another couple of classes. And while we were not taking any fantastic vacations, we paid our bills on time the whole time. And so that taught me that I we could survive on a lot less money than I'd imagined. And so when I started thinking about stepping out on my own for the year that I continued to work, I, instead of seeing some of those dollars as just sort of things I could, you know, buy something I just wanted with, I started seeing that as building my support for when I stepped out on my own in case there was a lull in my business. So I started putting all of that money away and thinking about other things around, you know, what do I need to have in place? I had multiple contracts when I stepped out on my own. So again, calculated risk. But those were some of the things that really helped me and having a game plan. So my husband and I had agreed that a year into this, if I was not where I wanted to be, that we would sit down and talk about 
Is it time to look for a job? Do we do this for another six months? Do we do it, do it for another year? What do we do? And so we had a plan in place. And again, I was really fortunate and have been this whole time that one project has led to another project has led to another project. So like you said something really critical here that I, I wrote down when you said it is that, you know, as you were interviewing and you were looking at jobs and thinking about taking a huge pay cut, what that meant for you and important in your decision was knowing your own value, knowing what you are worth and making a decision about that. So um, I think for so many of us, we know that our work is valuable. We know that we should be paid whatever we have in our minds based on statistics and you know salaries and whatnot. And yet most of us are underpaid and we don't know how to ask for what we are worth. And even especially, I would think like in your own business, how do you price? How do you know what to charge? I think, especially for those who are are doing side hustles or are thinking about going into business for themselves, you think, well, maybe I should be pricing really low so I can get clients, but it's definitely not what I'm valued at. How did you make decisions about that? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's interesting because because there's all of this stuff out there about women and negotiating and how often we don't do it. And a funny story, my very first job offer out of college, I got offered a job in Chicago with a I was a a PR major at Ursuline and right. So I graduated with my public relations degree and I was ready to storm the world and I get this job offer in Chicago and it pays $26,000 a year to live in Chicago. And by now I was a mom. So I'm thinking this is me and my son and Chicago rent is not cheap. And it never occurred to me actually not to try and negotiate. So I immediately was like, okay, so this is great, but... (laughs) <laughs> what you consider this, right? I looked at the cost of living and I came back to them with a counter offer. And unfortunately, their response to me was that this is what they offer all new people and that there was no budge. And and I so I said, I said, honestly, I asked the recruiter because we had a good rapport. I said, how do people afford this? And she said they get roommates. And I was like, oh, I have a roommate. He's four. <laughs> this is not gonna work for me like we're not gonna find an apartment with a stranger so I turned it down and I you know found I ended up finding a job at a nonprofit here actually at a similar rate but the cost of living in Chicago and one here in Cleveland is very different now I have no I, I do not hesitate to negotiate even now as a, and especially as a business owner, I will admit to definitely struggling at first with what do, what is the right price and really trying to get a a sense of how much to charge people. And again, having friends who are in business and who are doing similar work was a huge asset and being able to talk to people and get a sense of, well, what are you charging and how long have you been in business? And what is this person's background or expertise and how does that compare to mine and how do I decide? But I have absolutely turned things down because they have come to me with a price that is just too low. There are times where if if it's a project that I feel strongly about 
that I will make an adjustment if I believe that it's true that, that, you know, this is the only budget you have. And there's an added challenge as a Black woman uh, business owner because it's interesting. And at the intersection of those two things, right? So in some instances, companies would be willing to pay a man more money. And then they'd also be willing to pay someone who wasn't a person of color more money. So I have, I go in knowing that, right? And I'm also navigating that and wondering if it's all of a sudden you don't have the budget, but you have the budget for these other things that you consider a priority. And there's also the kind of work I do around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So are you just not valuing me? Are you not valuing this work? What is the dynamic that is happening here? And and absolutely, I have said thank you, but no thank you many times. I think that that is really a wonderful thing to hear somebody say that you're willing to say no because you know that you value yourself and your work and and you know what you're worth. And you actually offered me the perfect transition in our conversation because some of the work that you do, well, primarily the work that you do around leadership is really grounded in inclusion, in focusing on issues of intersectionality, which I think is so critical because we talk about women's leadership, we talk about women's issues, but just talking about women doesn't offer the breath that the conversation needs because women have different experiences based on race, culture, religion, age, sexuality, and so on and so forth. These things that intersect and we don't always connect those challenges. So I know you've been really grounding your work in bringing that into the conversation and looking at how do we change culture How can we build our teams to be engaged and acknowledging the intersectional differences and also how we can recognize each other's strengths because of our different lived experiences and what we bring to the table? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what do you think are the most critical things for us to know around considering intersectionality and leadership? Yeah. So thank you for that question. It's a great question. I cannot, whenever I talk about intersectionality, it feels really important to take a moment and pay homage to one, the Black feminist tradition that brought us that concept. So before the scholar Kimberly Crenshaw gave us that very specific language around intersectionality. We had the sisters, the Kambahi River Collective, telling us about these interlocking oppressions, right? And this very specific experience of being Black and a woman. And often mixed in that history is also being queer, holding a variety of identities. And then fast forward we get this very uh, specific language speaking to those experiences, that intersection of being Black and being a woman from Kimberly Crenshaw. And we know that that language has evolved to that people use it to talk about other ways in which none of us only have a single identity. We all have a variety of identities uh, that we that shape our lives that we claim and and that we connect to and i think that the term has evolved in that way but i always think it's important to talk about where it started where it came from and so in that there is a way i think in the women's leadership space where there is a willingness to engage and to talk about the different experiences that women are having holistically 
And then there are sometimes ways that we don't want to engage that conversation. And I think about it absolutely around race. But we also see, you know, we talk about gender on the binary still. So we have to remember who we might be leaving out of the conversation as we think about gender as more of a spectrum. And to your point, you named quite a few other dimensions of diversity. I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge, so when we're talking about diversity in a lot of cases, and you and I were joking a little bit about what I like to call the annual inoculation right? before we got started, where it's like, oh, I did that. I went to training and now I'm good for another year. And so they make me come back to this thing that I really didn't want to do anyway again next year. What's missing so often from those conversations are the power dynamics that are attached to the different dimensions. And that's the part that we have to acknowledge. It's not arbitrary. Oh, well, we just have women and we just have men. No, there is a power dynamic. We are living with a history that says one of those groups is more valuable, men, than another group, women. And that is true around a variety of dimensions of diversity. It's true around race, that some groups have more power as in white versus people of color and that there's a hierarchy in both of those that we have to own in all of these different dynamics. So I think that absolutely we need to focus on the ways that we have things in common and that we have shared lived experiences, but we cannot shy away from the ways that we have different lived experiences and that there are different power dynamics and different challenges that women have to navigate. Uh, I believe you know that I used to work for the YWCA Greater Mm -hmm. Cleveland, right, where our focus was eliminating racism and empowering women. And it was fascinating. So, so many women are ready to show up around the empowering women conversation Mm -hmm. and not so willing to show up around the eliminating racism conversation. And, you know, they are intersecting or interlocking oppressions. If we look at this from a systemic level, these things are connected. And the people who, you know, really feel strongly about men maintaining power also often feel really strongly about white folks maintaining power and about Christians maintaining power and about people who are heterosexual maintaining power like that. It it is all connected. And so we have to be willing, I think, to have the hard conversations, to examine again, what are our what where can we build alliances around shared experiences, but where can we show up? for each other around the ways in which our experiences are different and talk about, for example, pay equity. We keep, we always talk about the 79 cents, but that 79 cents is for white women, right? right? For black women, that number is 64 cents. For Latinas, that number is 54 cents. And so we have to acknowledge that we are not all having the same experience. So I wanna ask you, First of all, that pay statistic, I know it well, and I always find it so shocking. And when I share it with students, they're always really shocked because we only know the 79 cent statistic. And I think that that number actually has dropped quite dramatically since the start of COVID, right? And it's just like really thinking about 54 cents on the dollar. And the disproportionate impact of this past year on women. Right. So many women leaving the workforce. Um, Yes. We don't even know what we've lost yet. Absolutely. I agree. I think that as time moves forward, we're going to see the real cost 
of what has happened in this last year. And we don't fully realize it. Losing those voices in the greater conversation in leadership positions really is halting the change we've been working towards. It's like they always say, you know, one step forward, this is like 30 steps back. And I'm thinking about you consult with so many leaders. What are the things that you are telling them that they need to be thinking about to engage real cultural change in their organizations? Yeah, one of the things is that What we call inclusion in organizations is so often actually assimilation and that we really have to examine that and we have to create environments where people, you know, we say it, oh, you can show up as your full self and then we punish people for doing it. And whether that punishment is that they get stuck in their particular role and they don't get seen in any other way and they don't get any other opportunities or whether that is that they don't make it or that they don't get hired in the first place because they don't fit. So when we're thinking about the hiring process, we really have to rethink this concept of fitting and start thinking, if you are trying to create a different culture, don't you want people who bring something different to the culture? Why are you looking for people that fit what you already have if you're trying to change what you already have? And so once we move beyond them having the technical skills that they must have for that position, what are they bringing? And will that be fully embraced inside of the organization? Because the other thing is people get hired and then they don't stay because they don't find a place. They don't feel welcome. And there's a concept and we can thank Deloitte for bringing this to the fore Uh, It's this concept of covering is an old concept. Uh, It comes from a a sociologist coined this term, I believe, in the 60s. But they have, through their uncovering talent work, brought this concept to the fore and has us thinking about what are the ways that people are tamping down who they are in order to survive in the organization. And they did some really fascinating research on their employees. And they looked at it around gender, sexual identity, race, and disability. And what they found was a significant number of people are trying to diminish who they are in order to survive in the organizational culture. And the antidote to that, the antidote to that is actual inclusion. And if you think about the energy that is required for someone to hide who they are, that's creative energy they could be using to do their job, right? That's creative energy they could use to come up with the next amazing innovation that could be offered to clients or customers. That is taking away from their ability to deliver service. And we have to, we really have to work on that. We also have to rethink the way that we define professionalism in organizations, we really need to look at our policies, our policies inclusive. And now as you know, over the past year in particular, we have all of these organizations making declarations around anti, anti-racism, right? Post May. And now, you know, it's time for the rubber to meet the road. What are you actually doing differently that you weren't doing in April of last year? How do your policies look different? 
How are employees experience your organ experiencing your organization in a different way? How are you serving people differently, particularly nonprofits? So those are the things that we're we're talking about, and that is the work that we're doing. I'm doing a lot of organizational assessment these days, some training, but a lot less of that and more deep recommendations around how, you know, what's the current state and how do you move from where you are to where you want to go? That's really fantastic. The last question I want to ask you, and I think this is so important, is that, of course, we have to talk about the challenges that exist. We need to uncover those and acknowledge them and look for ways to move forward and to make positive change. But I also think it's really critical for us to acknowledge the ways that our identities give us a variety of strengths. And so I wonder, what would you say to a client about how to really highlight your strengths based on your identity? Yeah, I have a... uh... A tool that I often use, it is the multicultural organizational development model. And the framework that I use looks at essentially an organizational culture from racist to anti-racist. And there's a lot in between. But it's not until the organization gets into their six stages in this framework, gets to the fifth stage that they're actually seeing diversity, equity, and inclusion as assets. And so that's a shift. It goes from being a deficit to something that we tolerate to something that we truly value. And organizations almost always have All of them have strengths of some kind, and many of them have things that they can build on that are going to support them to get to the next level. So we always talk about what are the organizational assets? Is it that you have people who are deeply committed to your mission working in the organization and this is getting in the way of them being able to fully realize the work that they're trying to do? Is it that you have an environment where people actually care about each other and have strong relationships? Is it that you have a really powerful leadership team? All organizations have something that they can build upon to drive this work forward. And it starts with really, to your point, I love this question. A lot of us know what we're against. We don't always know what we're for. Right. And we cannot only focus on, to your point, the things that are broken or wrong, we also have to be able to vision. And in some cases, this requires use of imagination. So a lot of people uh, don't know this about me, but I am a huge science fiction fan. And I think that that helps me actually, because I have a huge imagination. And I think a lot about what does an equitable future look like? What's present in that space that is not present in the current culture that we have? So I actually believe that other things are possible. And so part of the work that I often do with organizations is what is your vision? What do you really want this to look like? And then how do we build backwards from what it is that you say you want, from what it is that you say you're for, to actually creating a plan that's going to get you there over time. This is not overnight work. This is not, oh, I'm going to create a project plan and we'll be done. We'll have this whole thing sewn up by next year. 
this is not that. This work literally has to be as central to the organization as finance or marketing or fundraising in a nonprofit. It has to have that prominent of a space and a focus and it is continued work. You're never gonna get rid of your finance department or your marketing. And so you have to be thinking about this work in the same way. I really appreciate that you say this is not overnight work because so many of us are just looking for a quick fix. This kind of work needs to take place. You know, as you're saying, it can't be a yearly event. It has to be integrated. It has to be a daily effort and it takes time to make positive change. And Gina, can I say one more thing? Which is to say, if this year has taught us nothing though, I think we have to say that we can make large scale change in shorter periods of time than we have historically been told, right? I mean, we have a vaccine for it, right. right? So I, I, I do believe that this work takes time. I also think it doesn't always take as long as we've been told it's supposed to take. We can accomplish a great deal in a short amount of time if we really zero in and if we believe it's necessary commitment right commitment and belief skill and will skill and will love that love that i'm gonna hold on to that for sure erica this has just been an amazing conversation and i know people are gonna so appreciate hearing your voice and your wisdom and all that you share here and if people want to connect with you what is the best way for them to do that Yeah, so they can connect with me on LinkedIn. That's one way. They can also find me on social media. So my business, Equius Group, has a page on Facebook. I am DevelopGrow7 on Twitter. And I am Erica Merritt2, T-O-O, on Instagram. So you can find me in any or all of those places and spaces. And also, of course, the website for your company, right? Is EquiusGroup.biz. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been just an eye-opening and wonderful conversation. Thank you, Erica. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening in today. And to learn more about our guests, visit our website at womenwellnesswork.ursuline.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to Women's Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.